0: So like I said, if you come and you, can't, come, you can't, miss, uh, can't be here for a week, all the sessions are recorded and you can catch up and you can stay posted. But the reason we study the Bible this way is because this is how the Bible was meant to be read and studied. Uh, chapters and verses were added in the Middle Ages. Chapters. Verses weren't even added until after the printing press was invented. So the Bible was always meant to be read in large swaths and books understood in their full context. And so what we're doing is going through the Old Testament. We're getting the story of Israel because the story of Israel is the story of Jesus. And the story of Jesus is our story. So if we don't know the story of Israel, then we are that much less familiar with Jesus because he claimed to embody the Old Testament. So that's why we focus on that. And we're in the book of Judges last week. Judges had a two-part opening, like the book of Genesis. Genesis has Genesis 1 creation account, and then Genesis 2 has a different version of the same events, but from a more zoomed-in space. We saw last week, Judges has a two-part introduction to the book. The first describes the uh, military and the logistic uh, failures of Israel, to put it bluntly. And the second chapter that we looked at last week describes the spiritual failure of Israel. And the whole book is going to be about that theme, Israel's military and spiritual failures. And the exception to that rule is going to be these, these deliverers that God raises up, these judges. But the word judges is misleading to us because we think of, you know, gavel and a black robe and a courthouse. But these were actually warrior deliverers. They were leaders of either parts of the country or the whole country of Israel at the time. So, Keep that in mind that this is the story, the theme of the book of Judges, and it's going to end with like it began, with a vivid graphic account of Israel's degradation, of their downfall throughout this period. Judges are the dark days of Israel. The only days that would even come close to rivaling the period of the Judges in terms of darkness is the Babylonian exile. So Judges is pretty much as bad a time as you can imagine in the life of God's covenant people and into that darkness are these the God steps down and he works with the people where they're at refusing to abandon them even in their own self-inflicted evil and that's what we're gonna see chapter three we we read it last week the recording got cut off so the podcast didn't quite get it but also as a recap because chapter three begins with a hinge section the first few verses it says, these are the nations that the Lord... and NIV says the Lord left, but the Hebrew is more emphatic. It says that the Lord gave rest to. And it's the same word used to describe in Joshua, God gave Israel rest in the land. Now, because of the wickedness, God is speaking of there's other nations that God's actually going to let rest in the remain in the land. In other words, God is not passively just, oh, whatever happens, happens. No, God actually is, because of Israel's action, saying, "All right, this is what's going to happen. This is all building off of Deuteronomy that we read two years ago, three years ago. You can catch it on the podcast. But these are the nations that the Lord gave rest to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. This is a new generation. This is the generation that has downwardly spiraled after Joshua and his uh, successors. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. The five rulers of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites living in Lebanon mountains from Mount baal Hermon to Lebo Hamath, they were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands which we had, he had given their forefathers through Moses. That's specifically talking about Exodus and Deuteronomy and what we know of as the covenant. So God has given Israel the covenant. And if you remember, those of you that were here for those books, the covenant promises were always, if you're faithful to me, your enemies will not stand before you. If you're faithful to me, I will win the battles. And so now God is going to put that to the test to see will Israel be faithful to him? Because if they're faithful, the outcome to the battle is already determined. And so God's giving them the chance. Be faithful to me. And these people who are here, who seem oppressive, who seem invasive, who seem to be encroaching upon your land, I'll take care of them. So that's the test he leaves before Israel. But guess what? Very next verse. Israel fails the test spectacularly. They don't even get an F. They get a zero. They completely fail. It says, The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hivites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. That list should be familiar to those of you who have been here for a while. Those are the peoples that God specifically said drive out of the land and do not live in their midst. Because if you do, you will adopt their practices and you will become like them and I will then bring judgment on you. And that's a long story, but catch the podcast or the videos if you want the background on that. The Israelites lived among them. And verse 6, they took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. And that's the key. The giving of marriage is okay. If, if, if somebody bring comes into the people of Israel, they enter into the covenant community through marriage, even though they're a Gentile. As long as they enter into and enter into the covenant with Yahweh, become an Israelite, that's cool. We get whole books of the Bible named after people that do that, like Ruth. Right, there's a long line of people who intermarry into Israel. God's never had a problem with inter-ethnic marriage, inter-tribal marriage, interracial marriage. Some preachers have taught that. Don't know where they pulled that out from. Not from the Bible. God's never had a problem with that. What He's had a problem with is inter-religious alliances and going after other gods or allowing people that you do marry to bring in their gods, which is exactly what Solomon did and that's exactly what brought down Israel at the height of its power under Solomon. So bringing in, uh, uh, intermingling, becoming, and that's the theme of this whole book. That's basically the rest of the book is going to describe, is the, as Daniel Block puts it, a scholar on the book of Judges, he says, Judges is about the Canaanization of Israel. Israel becoming Canaanites. And that's exactly what happens. And it's what God warned against. God specifically Go to Deuteronomy, no, not now, but when you, in your own time, go to Deuteronomy 7 and read verse 3. It specifically says not to do this. Deuteronomy 7.3 specifically says not to do this. So, Israel has failed the Deuteronomy covenant. They have, they have failed the test. And now we enter into what's going to carry us through chapter 16, which is the cycle of these 12 judges. These 12 charismatic leaders God raises up. No coincidence that it's 12. 12 is the number of the tribes of Israel, the number of the months of the year. It's a very symbolic number. And the judges are somewhat arranged around the months of the year. If there's, there's, check the commentaries if you want to see the clues in the text. But basically each judge is kind of lines up with a different month going through the seasons of Israel. Um, at a literary pattern, not chronologically, because this happens over hundreds of years. But regardless, now we enter into the period where Israel's evil. That's the key thing to keep in mind. In the book of Judges, Israel is predominantly the bad guy. And despite their evil, God made a promise that through them all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Way back to Genesis, God made that promise to Abraham. And so now the book of Judges presents the dilemma that God, that God sees. How do I remain faithful to my promise to bless the world through the descendants of Abraham when the descendants of Abraham themselves have become like the people who I have trying to bring back to me when they've become pagan what do i do and so throughout the book there's going to be that tension and that tension is not going to ever be fully resolved until the new testament that'll be the history of israel how does god work with a broken instrument that's what we see in judges but judges begins now so remember the book is a downward spiral all right it's not a cyclical thing. It's a, down, it's a Every time you flush the toilet, that's an image of the book of Judges. A downward spiral. We're, literally, we're going to see in a minute. A downward spiral of the book. So, the beginning of the book that we're going to read first, we're going to look at three Judges real quick. The beginning starts out great. It actually... the prototypical Judge. He comes from the tribe of Judah. He's a mighty warrior. We've met him two chapters ago. He's valiant. He's obedient to God. And surprise, surprise, he's a Gentile. We're going to meet Othniel, the first judge of Israel. Verse 7, "...the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord." They forgot, and that's, that could be translated also as they forsook. Forsaken, forsook, I don't know which one you choose, but they, not just like, oh, I forgot my car keys. No, forgetting God means forsaking God. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. What does that mean? We've mentioned it before, but some of you are new. Baal and Asherah are two of the Canaanite gods. There were others. There was Astarte, there was Anath, uh, there was El. But basically, Baal, there was the main god El and his wife Asherah. Baal, I mean, El and his wife Asherah. El, the high god, kind of the old grandfatherly, too tired to bother with things anymore. And Asherah, his consort, mother goddess, she bore 70 gods of Canaan. And one of those gods was Baal, the prince, the storm god. Baal was the god of the storm. And storms in Canaan mean fertility. Because when it storms, it does what? It rains. When it rains, what happens? Your crops grow, your animals have water to drink, things flourish. So, the entire religion of Canaan was focused on getting Baal to bring his storms to water the earth. How do you do that? Well, this is where it gets graphic. Baal's storm, the storms were seen as Baal spilling his seed and impregnating the earth. Literally, think about that when it's raining next time. You're just getting Baal's semen falling from the sky. It sounds weird and gross, but that's the mindset of ancient Canaanite fertility religion. Because that seed of Baal permeated the womb of the Mother Earth and from that fertility. So how do you get Baal to bring the rain, to bring the storm? You get him excited. How do you get him excited? You show him things that are exciting. That's why there was temple prostitution. That's why there were high places where you would go and there would be a cult prostitute. You would have sex with that cult prostitute at the high place. Why? Because it's closer to Baal. It's a better view. He can watch you guys do the deed. That gets him excited. makes him want to do the deed. And then your fertility ensues. This is all of the Canaanite pagan religion that Israel was... Do you see now why it's appealing? It wasn't like, hey, here's a stone. Worship it. No, that would not have any appeal whatsoever. But hey, you want to be holy? See this beautiful temple prostitute. Come have sex with her and eat delicious food and enjoy this orgiastic feast at a high place. And in addition to that, I mean, as if that's not fun enough, all of your crops will grow, all of your herds will increase, and you will bear children. This was what Canaanite religion was all about. And in times of despair and in times of disaster, you give to the gods. If if just doing the act isn't enough to get Baal excited, then you have to stir his bloodlust. so you would scar yourself, you'd cut yourself. Or even in times of severe uh, uh, chaos and, and emergency, you give fatted calf, you give prized possessions, you give the thing most valuable to you, your child. Child sacrifice was part of this system. So these are the evils of the Canaanite, the Baals and the Asherahs. Asherah was represented by a wooden pillar. It was phallic. It was a wooden pole meant to get her excited. And so whenever the Bible talks about cutting down the Asherah poles, that's what it is. It means life-size sex toy, basically. This is the what the religion of Canaan was. You have to understand this before any of this stuff really starts to sink in. The level of depravity. That the Canaanites lived with daily, it was their life, and Israel comes into that and joins in. That's the key. Israel joins in, and their worship becomes syncretistic. They, they, they do they, Yeah, we will have a lot. There's inscriptions. Check this out. Inscriptions have been found, literally, that say, "Blessed be so and so, Yahweh and his Asherah," because they started to take this and say, "Yeah, Yahweh is Yahweh. So he's our God. He brought us out of Egypt." but he also has a heavenly wife. He has an Asherah. So you had this weird syncretistic belief about Yahweh and His wife. Asherah. So you could worship Asherah and still claim to worship God. Syncretism. You go to church on Sunday, but you check your horoscopes, you do your tarot cards, you go to your fortune teller, you go to the medicine man if you're in other parts of the world. Syncretism. That's what Israel was experiencing. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan-Rishathaim, king of Aram Naharaim. That's a great word. Cushan-Rishathaim, king of Aram Naharaim. Who's this dude? Well, Cushan-Rishathaim literally means Cushon the doubly wicked. Uh, I am ending means two of something, and so Rishathaim, evil or wickedness, and so he's like doubly wicked. It's probably like a title or a nickname that Israel gave him, not that he gave himself. Um, Aram Naharayim. What's that? Well, the Septuagint translates this as Syria. It's where Abraham came from. It's up in the north of Israel. Kushan rishathaim was not a local petty warlord. He was actually a strong... Some, some scholars, we, don't, we can't identify him with a specific person, but think on the level of like emperor or king of Babylon or Assyria or, or somewhere in this territory of Aramea. Uh, he was a big deal. This is not like a local warlord. This is a big... Strong. Some even say this is part of his incursion down to Egypt, because he had to go through Israel to get to Egypt. Regardless, that's who God sold Israel into, and they served. Uh, who was subject? Israelites were subject for eight years, but when they cried out to the Lord, He raised up for them a deliverer, a savior. Actually, comes from the word Yeshua, which is where Yeshua, Jesus, comes from. It means salvation. Somebody who saved them. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan-Rishathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years, a whole generation, until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. So the judge, book of Judges starts off, that's pretty good. People cry out. God sends them deliverer, man of good pedigree. Tribe of Judah. Even though he's a Gentile, he's a proselyte, but he's still from the tribe of Judah. So the first Savior of Israel is a Gentile, someone who comes to the faith from outside as a Kenizzite, and who actually delivers them from one of the strongest enemies at the time. And it's just that—that's it. That's the first judge. Now we're going to move into the second judge because this whole first section is the judges of Israel are going to be different than what's expected. So you don't expect a Gentile to be the one who delivers Israel first, but he does now things are going to start to get a little more ambiguous once again the israelites did evil in the eyes of the lord because they did this evil the lord gave eglon king of moab power over israel getting the ammonites and amalekites to join him eglon came and attacked israel and they took possession of the city of the palms that's jericho the israelites were subject to eglon king of moab for eighteen years now moab is on the eastern side of the jordan river that's where israel was all in deuteronomy and when they were coming up god specifically said do not take any land of the moabites they're your relatives going all the way back to abraham and his sons lot and i've not given you their land i've given you canaan so israel passes through moab canaan now god is bringing allowing moab to come in along with the amalekites and the ammonites to come in off that across the Jordan River into Israel. And so Eglon sets up his base of operations at Jericho, which is right across the river. It's where Israel crossed their first base of operations. And it's a natural oasis. You can go there today and it's actually a little oasis in the desert. And so Eglon sets up his, ba- so he has like his, his, his outpost camp or his royal, maybe his summer home, at Jericho's that he can rule over the people in Canaan. While Meanwhile, the rest of his forces are back in Moab on this side of the Jordan. Now, Eglon is a funny name. I mean, just in English, it sounds funny, but in Hebrew, it's literally a funny name. Um, the word egel. Egel is the word for fatted calf, the calf you would fatten up to sacrifice or eat. And on, the n on the end of it is a diminutive. Like if it, it's the equivalent of if we said, now, Fatty, king of Moab, was ruling over, it, that's literally the sense. Little, little fatty is what Eglon means, a little fat calf. You know, even the term fat cat in English might work. Like, oh, so-and-so, the fat cat that rules over the mob. Think of that when you think of Eglon. And the word agal is the word for rotund or round. So already it's, a, it's kind of a funny image, but he's a serious dude, you know? He, think of the godfather. He's a big fat guy, but he could say the word and people died. Alright, so that's kind of what's going on here with Eglon. Again, verse 15, again the Israelites cried out to the Lord... And he raised up. NIV says gave them, but literally he raised up a deliverer, again a savior, Ehud, a left-handed man, son of Gera, the Benjaminite. Ehud's name literally means uh, "Where's the splendor?" It's kind of a, a funny name. Like, what's the big deal? Where's the Where's the majesty? Right? And he was a left-handed guy from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin, literally Benyamin, that tribal name means son of the right hand. So there's a wordplay here. He was a left-handed right-hander. And the phrase left-handed literally in Hebrew is bound of the right hand. So in, among Benjaminites, we'll read about this later in the book, but there was a practice among Benjaminites apparently where when the kids were growing up, they would bind their right hand somehow so that they became ambidextrous can use their left hand. And later, when they go to war against the Benjaminites, it says there are Benjaminites who could sling a sling stone with their left hand and hit a hair, like the hair of a little fly or something. Just pinpoint accuracy. Left-handed. And the Septuagint actually translates, that, it says, it translates left-handed as ambidextrous. So, but at the time, being left-handed was seen as somewhat of an abnormality, if not a handicap, culturally. Left-handedness up until recently has been associated with shadiness. The word sinister comes from the Latin word sinestra, which means left-handed. So sorry if you're left-handed in here. You're sinister people. Um, But So everything in this story is like, Eglon, where's the glory? Where's the splendor? From the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin's going to be a pretty terrible tribe by the end of the book, as we'll see. And he's left-handed. So already, again, an abnormal figure that you would not choose. But God raises him up. So now here's his story: The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, like payment, extortion money, which is basically what tribute is. Now Aod made a small or made a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. Double-edged sword, we think of like, ah, like a sword. but, but think of a prison shank. That's basically what it is, about this long, a prison shank about this long, with no hilt, double-edged. A single edged blade is what? For slicing and hacking. A double edged blade is for piercing. So, this is an old school prison shank. And he puts it on his right hip. Or, right hip. Why? Because he's left handed. If you're right handed, put it on your left hip. All right? So, he makes this and he gets ready. He presented the tribute to King Aglano, King of Moab who was a very fat man. Now the text makes it very clear. Fatty was indeed fat. <laughs> After Ehud had presented the tribute, oh, sorry, yeah. He presented tribute to Eglon. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way the men who had carried it. At the idols near Gilgal, which is like a landmark area, he himself, so he was, went back with them, then he turned back, went back to Jericho, and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And literally in Hebrew it says, I have a secret thing for you. The word message is the word dabar. It means word, thing, deed, message. Um, it, it has a range of meanings. So thing is a good way to translate it. Now I have a secret thing for you. The king said, quiet. And all his attendants left him. This is a fun little fact. The Hebrew word he says is has. And the Arabic cognate of that is hus. And that's exactly where we get the English word hush from. So he literally says hush. Get out. This guy's got... He, he, Eglon's, I mean, Ehud's already fattened him up, so to speak, by giving this big tribute. So he's earned good graces. So now Eglon thinks, hey, this guy's, he gave me all this tribute and, and this is an obedient vassal. He's got a secret message for me. You guys get out. I need to hear this. I'm important. I'm Eglon. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace in Jericho. And he said, I have a thing, message, word. From God for you, as the king rose from his seat, Ed reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade. Now here's where we have a translation issue. NIV says which came out the back, meaning stabbed him until the blade came out the back. If you have a New Revised Standard, it says he stabbed him and the dirt came out. Um, If you have other translation, says and he went out the back. There's three ways you can say what happened here. The first way, Eglon stabbed him in IV, wanting to be a little, there's good reason. The, the, The word's ambiguous. Stabbed him until the sword went all the way through him and came out the back. The other translations, New Revised, which follows the Targum and the other ancient traditions of translating it says he stabbed him and the dirt came out. That's a euphemism. He stabbed him and his bowels released. All right, and that's, that's the translation that I think is most likely because of what's about to happen. The third way to read it is it says, and he stabbed him, and he went out the back. Meaning, like, Ehud stabbed him, and then he, he left out the back door. So there's three ways you can read it. Take your pick. But either way, now it's going to give a little more detail. Even the handle sank in after the blade, which came out the back. AO did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Just fat rolls over it. Right in there. Then Ahlod went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and he locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, NIV says he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the house. Literally in Hebrew it says he must be pouring out his feet. This is another fun thing. Foot is a euphemism for genitals in Hebrew. So pouring out your feet means he's taking a leak. (laughs) He's pouring out his feet. Um, this all colors how you read other passages in the Bible, when Ruth uncovers Boaz's feet. What really happened there? Uh, when it says so-and-so got down, oh, he's in the back, he's covering his feet. Well, that means he's squatting down and pooping. <laughs> like, there's, the Hebrew has a fun way of saying all of these terms that, just like in English, we say. We use the phrase, go to the bathroom. Nobody's taking a bath in there. We know exactly what we're doing in there, but we say, politely, go to the bathroom, right? So this is definitely toilet humor, and the story's meant to invoke this. This king, this mighty warlord, is reduced to a pile of dead fat and feces, basically. All because of this deliverer, this unwitting, uh, unexpected deliverer, assassin, Ehud. So Ehud gets out. Uh, The attendants come. They say, oh, he's relieving himself. So they waited to the point of embarrassment. When he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked him. There they saw their Lord fall to the floor, dead. While they waited, Ahud got away. He passed the idols, of, uh, the idols near Gilgal, escaped to Syria. That could also mean he just escaped to the forest, depending on how you translate that. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands. So they followed him down. And taking possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab, they allowed no one to cross over. At the time they struck down about ten eleph of Moabites. And eleph is the word that gets translated as thousand. But if you've been here with us through Numbers and Deuteronomy, you know that eleph also means clan or regiment. It could just mean a group. So it doesn't have to mean a thousand. So striking down ten eleph or ten thousand, either way it's a lot of people coming, trying to get back to their territory. They're in Jericho, trying to get back to Moab to bring reinforcements. And Israelite camps right at the fords of the Jordan and they strike them down and they don't let them get through. So they divide the armies, Moab, from each other strategically. So this is the military aspect of Ehud and how they were able to break the stranglehold of Moab over Israel. So follow me, the words given them up in your hands. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Literally in Hebrew, it says all fat and strong, but fat in the good sense. Not Eglon fat, but like fat, like the fat part of an offering or the fatted calf or the, the fat of the land. It's, fat can mean healthy, <laughs> contrary to what we think. Sometimes in the Bible, fat can mean healthy. And that's what this was. These were healthy, vigorous, strong Moabites that day Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for eighty years, two generations, because God raised up this deliverer, Ehud, this nobody who took a very weird and, and this whole thing it's like it's just it's a little, first it's an assassination story um, about about basically there's a warlord who's overruling people. How do you throw off the army? Well, you kill the head of the snake first, and then the rest of the people. This is just good military strategy. So there's so many assassination attempts on leaders and generals and officers and things like this. And that's exactly what happens in this case. There's a lot of irony in the story, there's a lot of wordplay in the story, there's a lot of humor, body humor, toilet humor. Um, But at the end of the day, the narrator never really commentates on the degree to which God is involved in this. It just says He raised up somebody to save them from the Moabites, and then we get the story of how it happened. And then at the end, the land had peace. So this is part of what you're going to see in Judges, is we don't turn this into, now, how can you be an Ehud? You know, turn your handicap into a, what, assassination attempt? Like there, there's not a straightforward moral in this. And that's part of Judges, is there's going to be a lot of ambiguity. There's going to be a lot of like, huh, what's going on here? But remember, this is the dark times of Israel. So this is a, a story of how Israel was freed from an oppressive, ruling, occupying military force. And it took craftiness and it took, it took deceit and subtleness and violence and all of that. And you're going to see more of that as Judges goes. There's a reason that the video image that I use for this story says explicit content. <laughs> because this is just the beginning of explicitness. But we're going to end. we got th- about 30 seconds, so let's finish with the last verse, the third judge of this cycle. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. All we know about him, but there's enough in this few th- in this one verse to make some points. First of all, Shamgar is not a Hebrew name. This is a name that's the Hebrew names are three three consonants. This is four consonants in Hebrew, and so this is not a Hebrew name. This may be like a Hurian or one of the other peoples up north. God raised him up. He uh, saved Israel, and it says he struck down. First of all, Shamgar, son of Anath, Ben Anath. In Hebrew, there's a case that can be made. Scholars have made this case, and check the commentaries if you want to. But it could mean Ben Anath is a city up near Galilee, and so he's just from Ben Anath. Or Ben Anath means literally son of Anath. Anath was the goddess in Canaanite, the Canaanite goddess of war, who was worshipped as far as Egypt as a goddess of war. And so the Ben Anath. Likely a very strong possibility, not ironclad, but it's strong enough that the term Ben Anath was a technical term for a group of fighting people, Gentile like Hurrian and mixed group fighting people who actually fought under Ramses III against the Philistines. If that's the case, and you can make the case for it, then, then Shamgar Ben Anath was Shamgar the mercenary, the Gentile mercenary who was fighting against the Philistines on behalf of Egypt and God used him to deliver Israel a foreign mercenary to save Israel from the Philistines by by being a thorn in their side so that they couldn't be a thorn in Israel's side at this point so there's just it's, it's ambiguous we don't know exactly who Shemgar was we don't know we know that he did it and he also he's noted for striking down 600 Philistines with an ox goat. what's an ox goad what's well, a stick with a little metal tip on the end that you poke cow to get them to move That's all it is. The word for ox-goat is the word for pointer. Like a professor would use a pointer to show something on the board. So it's not a weapon by any means. But yet, that's what he uses. Now later, we're going to meet another man who strikes down Philistines with not a weapon, but a jawbone. his name will be Samson. But right now, again, the point of this is this three cycle, God uses these three unique people. Each time Israel does evil, they cry out. God sends a deliverer and instead of learning and following God they go back and they turn and worship other gods worse than before so the next cycle we're going to get to we're out of time the next cycle we're going to get to is the Deborah cycle God's going to do the craziest thing in that culture he's going to use a woman a, a, no two women He's going to use two women. So it's going to be doubly scandalous for the patriarchal Israelites. But you know what? God doesn't care about patriarchal uh, cultural norms. He'll use who he uses, and he'll accomplish what he accomplishes. And Deborah and J.L. are going to get the credit. And it's a pretty cool story, especially if you're a fan of women, which half of you in here certainly are, and the other half should be. So, but we got to go. We're out of time. We're actually three minutes over. I apologize. That'll never happen for another year or so. Have a great week. Come back next week, Judges 4.